Let's continue our worship by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Romans. We'll be at chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 is the text today. And again, if you are a guest, we're in the middle of a series on the foundations of the faith. We've covered things like the authority of Scripture, the sinfulness of man, his absolute inability, the sufficiency of God's grace and Christ. And as we make our way to the back half of the series, we find ourselves today looking at that fundamental relationship between the law and the gospel. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There was a deafening roar of laughter And then a bang that was muffled by the surrounding noise. This all happened on that fateful night of April 14th, 1865. It was in the dimly lit Ford's Theater. The bang of that 44 caliber pistol was timed perfectly. The assassin intentionally did it at a moment in the play where he knew everyone would laugh so as to mask the noise and to enable an escape. Booth's bullet would perforate the chestnut hair of the president, making its way through the brain matter, lodging itself behind his right eye, thereby rendering him unconscious until he would die several hours later. Immediately, upon executing the president, he would begin to make a break for the stage, anticipating uh, further obstacles. He would utilize his other weapon at this point, which was a a short knife uh, with uh, the, the following etched into its surface, the land of the free and the home of the brave. There would be one obstacle, one person between him and his escape, and he would plunge the knife into that person's forearm, immediately manning the balcony, preparing himself for a jump onto the stage. He lands unevenly on stage with knife in hand, stands in the center 
a forged theater, raises the bloody knife and yells, Sic Semper Tyrannus. It was the Virginia state motto, thus always to tyrants. And then one more line, the South is avenged, and he would scurry off into the darkness. Booth would explain his actions in a letter that he would write to a local newspaper. He said that he had something very specific in mind for this. He says, many will blame me for what I'm about to do, but posterity, I am sure, will justify me. Justify him. Booth did not think what he was doing was wrong. Did he not shout death to tyrants? Lincoln, the liberator of slaves, a tyrant? Posterity justifying the assassination of a president? Booth's unique perspective reminds us of how easy it is to fight the wrong battles when we think we're fighting the right ones. All of us have this penchant for error, to throw ourselves wholly into some things that we think are so right that may in and of themselves actually be so, so wrong. Maybe one of the greatest ways that this penchant for error displays itself in the lives of believers is in something as important and often as confusing as the relationship of the law and the gospel. Sometimes when we're trying to figure out what the real enemy is of our soul, we may accidentally begin to attack the wrong things. Now, I think that even in a crowd like this on a Sunday morning, there's probably three groups in particular that could fall prone to this error. The first would be those of you who are lost. The lost. This would be those in our culture who shamelessly cry, death to that tyrant who is God and his claims to moral authority. You know those people are out there, right? They may even be in here. The idea uh, came from Frederick Nietzsche. He was the one that uh, muttered those famous words that still ring through our culture today, God is dead, and we have killed him. In Nietzsche's work, he's actually celebrating the death of God. 
He says that because of the Enlightenment and because we're in this new generation where everybody can think for themselves, that they don't have to rely on these, these moralistic principles that have been imposed upon us from the supposed God on high, we're able to move into a new realm of humanity. In fact, I don't know how to say the German word, but it's roughly translated. We've moved into the age of the Superman. The Superman. Now man can finally, without the shackles of God, determine how the world should really work. And we've seen the fruit of this, have we not? In our modern age, societally speaking, the God of the Bible is the great enemy. They don't mind the idea of a God, but the God of the Bible is the enemy. We've seen this uh, Superman on the scenes, rewriting the new possibilities of belief and behavior, and here are some of the outcomes. The mangling of marriage, the relativization of ethics, the dismissal of theology in the name of science, the normalization of fornication and sexual perversion, uh, rebellion against gender roles, and even the idea of gender itself. Government-sponsored slaughter of the unborn, just to name a few. There's your Superman. That's what happens for those who have seen God as the great enemy. Six Semper Tyrannus. Death to tyrants. But of course, I, I'm not naive. I understand this is a Sunday morning crowd. <laughs> you may have stumbled in here thinking that, but I think that probably most in this room would find themselves not in that category, but actually in maybe one of the next two that I'll mention. Even those in Christ can sometimes misidentify the real enemy of their soul. Christians can do this. And one group of Christians that I'd be concerned about this morning would be what I will call and label the lawless. We've discussed the lost, but now let me talk about those of you in Christ who would put yourself on the lawless side of the equation Some in Christ, with good intention, will cry something similar to that of their secular counterparts. They say something like this, death to that tyrant that is God's law. Be gone with the law, down with the law, down with God. I mean, we're up with God, but down with his commands. He doesn't want that from us anymore. Moral imperatives, they'll just trip us up. Although this exists in more or less radical forms, This is a principle that is alive and well. There are some people who really do think that God's laws, God's commands are like the great enemy of their spiritual satisfaction, their spiritual safety. They're so worried about legalism uh, that the only strategy that they have for dealing with uh, indwelling sin is believe, believe, believe. Never behave, just believe. You just need to preach the gospel to yourself more and more and more. You just need to keep trusting. Don't worry about trying. But the problem with these who find themselves in this category is that they still inherently, even though they are trying to rid themselves of God's law, they still find themselves defeated and depressed on account of indwelling sin. No matter how much they keep telling themselves to believe, they understand that fundamentally They're not behaving in a way that reflects the change that God has promised them. 
And so I'd be concerned about the lawless who see God's law as the great enemy. But I'm also concerned about others in Christ who wage the war not against God's law, but against themselves. This third category of people I would call the legalists. There's the lost, the lawless, and the legalist. The legalist is an individual who with good intention would cry out, death to me, as I cannot obey him no matter how hard I try. Oh, wretched man that I am. They love that line from Paul. Rightfully, they will not fault God or his law with their moral failures. Instead, they fault themselves. And you know what their uh, mantra is? It isn't believe, believe, believe. It's behave, behave, behave. I can do this. And so with white knuckles and clenched fists, they pursue holiness. And yet there's a problem. One is interpersonal. They're so angry all the time, and they're so frustrated (laughs) that even though they can live some external standards of holiness, uh, they are just horrible to be around. And Half of the fruit of the Spirit deal with our interpersonal relationships with others. And if they can somehow avoid that mine, that landmine, they'll step on the other, which is internally, secretly, they feel this pressure all the time, and they just need some release to let it go. And so all those works of the flesh, sexual sin, or even alcoholism, or things that they secretly are like letting out because they are so tired of having to obey day after day after day in the power of their own flesh. So the question is this, will the real, will the real tyrant please stand up? What is, what's our enemy? It's certainly not God, we know that, Is it the law? Is it ourselves? Where do we focus our energies, our efforts, in this walk with God, in our attempts to live out the grace of the gospel? Friends, Paul has been answering this dilemma for the last three chapters of this epistle that we read this morning. He's very concerned about those who are in Christ understanding their real enemy. In chapter 5, we saw this about a month and a half ago. We knew that there were two categories of people. There were those who were in Christ and those who were in Adam. Do you remember that? It's like the, 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 the center point of the book of Romans, if you will. And so he says, like, all right, those who are in Adam, or they all die and they are dominated by sin. Those who are in Christ, they don't have to worry about sin. It's been paid for, and they will receive righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul has argued for like this positional reality, like who we are before God. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. But he's concerned about something, something that you and I would be concerned about this morning, and that is, okay, well, what does this look like in practice? What does this look like in everyday, ordinary living? 
Paul, it's great. I'm glad you've got these positional categories, these hypothetical categories of our standing before God one day. But what about right now? What does it look like? Because the Jewish people in that Roman church, and there were a lot of them, believe it or not, would have been hyper-concerned about obedience because they knew that without obedience, one could not please the Lord. So, Paul, how does your whole in Christ, in Adam paradigm work itself out in everyday living? And so Paul writes Romans 6. And in Romans 6, he actually shows that, practically speaking, you are no longer dominated by the power of sin, but you have been delivered into the power of God that has been imparted to you through the resurrection. Through Christ's death, you're dead to sin. Through Christ's resurrection, you are alive. And so he uses this analogy of a slave. He says, basically, you switched owners. You were under the ownership of sin, and now you're under the ownership of righteousness. You can obey. He's not talking positional. He's talking practical. He's talking about everyday living. You can do this in Christ. Romans 7, he's still talking about the same thing. But now he's going to throw in what I would call like the X factor. He's going to throw in the law. Uh, By the law, he is referring to the Mosaic law because it's kind of a a strange thing. This is the enemy that we don't understand or even should it be an enemy. Because it obviously does some really good stuff. But when you read Romans 7, you find out that it can do some really bad stuff. I mean, it exposes our need for grace. But Romans 7 says something really strange that it also exacerbates our sin. It intensifies it. It's kind of like when you tell a kid, don't touch that box. What box? (laughs) You know, like that's the way that children think. I mean, as soon as you are told specifically not to do something, there's this principle within you that wells up that says, I want to do that. And so Paul is like addressing that. He's saying, look, the, the law that God has given us is good, But I know it puts us in a weird spot because there is a sense in which it can exacerbate our sin or intensify our sin. But guess what? Even though the law has some shortcomings because of our own humanity, the gospel, what has happened in Christ, actually enables us. Listen to this. It actually enables us to fulfill God's law in ways that were never possible before Christ. That's what Romans 7 is about. When you try to do this by yourself, when you try to do this in the strength of your own flesh, not considering what Christ has done for you, pardon the phrase, I just got to use it, it's vivid, it helps. You will get your butt handed to you. Remember where Paul says it. The things that I I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I, I know I want to do, I should do, those are the things I don't do. Friends, I want to be like really helpful for you this morning. That is not to be the normal Christian experience. I know we read Romans 7. If you've been in Christ for a while and you're like, oh man, I'm glad Paul struggled too. That is not what he is communicating. He's saying that is what will happen to you when you try to fulfill God's law in your own strength. Paul is setting up something for Romans 8. Romans 7 exposes the problem of the law, but Romans 8 exposes the potential of the law when it's enabled by the Spirit, which gets us to this great verse, Romans 8, 1. 
There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is fantastic. Uh, this means, obviously, something about our, our sentence, a judicial sentence. Okay, clearly the penalty has been paid in Christ. You are not condemned. We've sang about that this morning. Like, he's already paid the price for sin. If, if the penalty was, hypothetically, uh, death by injection, Jesus already took it. He, he already paid and satisfied said penalty. But when this text, in its context, is talking about there being no condemnation, it is not just talking about our sentence, but it is also talking about our status. Our status. Who we are. Not just what we deserved. Can I illustrate it for you with um, the condemning of a house? When, if you've ever seen it, that sticker that will show up on some dilapidated house that says, Condemned. <laughs> Uh, what it's doing is it is previewing its sentence. Something will happen to this house. It will be destroyed on account of its deficiencies. Makes sense. But you know what that orange sticker also says? <laughs> it says something about its status. This thing is messed up from the floor up. <laughs> I mean, it is tanked. It is beyond repair. Not just in what it will be, but in what it currently is. When the, when the text says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ, sure, it is talking about the sentence, but it is also talking about our status. Guess what, friends? If you're in Christ, you aren't so fundamentally messed up anymore. Something has changed in you. You're not, you're not condemned There is no, zero, zilch, nada, nothing, condemnation in you, if you are in Christ. And so, that's the good news. That's what Paul wants to unfold this morning. And he's going to show particularly how this no condemnation thing relates to the law. I, I want you to look at it this way. Basically, what this text is about, it's dense. I'm going to warn it is thick as it comes. <laughs> But I want to help you understand it by you getting the main idea. Here, here's the main idea of Romans 8, 1 through 4. It is about the eradication of condemnation. The eradication of condemnation, as I've defined. But I want you to imagine that like uh, the bud of a flower. What we need to really understand this thing is to, to allow it to bloom through line-by-line line contemplation. What, what I want to do is unfold this flower for you as we carefully work our way through verses 2, 3, and 4. I want to show you the different layers of this truth that this condemnation has been eradicated. Okay? You're going to have to hang with me. I'm, I don't know how else to, to, to tell you that... This is going to require some intense thought for a few moments, but the flower is so beautiful. You've got to check this out. It's totally worth your thought. I prayed this morning for you, recognizing that you think deeply about your hobbies, that you think deeply about your work, that you think deeply about your children. I'm asking you to give me 20 minutes of deep thought about God's Word. Is that okay? All right, three layers of this eradication of condemnation. Uh, first layer is a new administration. I'll go ahead and give you all three for those of you who like to take notes. A new administration, verse 2. The second layer, sin's condemnation, verse 3. 
And then the third layer, you might have to hear this one twice, but just hang with me. The Spirit's vivification. Vivification. I did not make that word up. The Puritans did. (laughs) They made it up. (laughs) But it is a real word. Vivification. V-I-V-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. You you know when I'm even spelling the points that this is dense. (laughs) Vivification. It means to give life. It's the opposite of condemnation. Don't worry. I'll explain it more in a moment. Verses 2, 3, and 4. All right, now, there's your layers. All right, let, let's unpack this. In what way has, uh, can we see this eradication and, uh, of condemnation? How can we unfold this flower so that we can not only appreciate it but apply it? Because, again, you, you won't be able to, to like, execute this thing if you don't first internally understand it. Okay, So uh, the first layer that, I, I, that Paul unfolds here about this is this new administration. Uh, look at verse 2. For, that's, that's an explanatory note, for uh, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, let's just walk through this carefully. Uh, notice the law, that's an interesting phrase, ha- has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's two laws here in this passage. Some people will try to interpret this as uh, the law as principle or power. Uh, Basically, no, the law here is just God's moral demands. There's debate within uh, Christian circles about whether this applies to just moral sections of the Old Testament code under Moses, or whether this is just God's moral imperatives generally that he gives in both the Old and New Testament. Either way, the the way to reduce it in the way that we can understand it is the law here is what God morally demands of his people. And there's two approaches to this. That there is a law that is characterized by the Spirit and leads to life. The law of the Spirit of life. That's one administration. And then there's another. There is a law, the the moral demands of God, that, that is associated with sin and leads to death. Administration number two. You get the idea? All right, so we've got the law of sin associated with sin. We've got the law that's associated with spirit. And basically what he's saying is this law that operates for those who are in Christ Jesus, the text makes that clear, has released us from this law. We are no longer under this anymore. You don't have to worry about the way things used to work. So both uh, administrations, if you will, are trying to obey God. They both want to do what God says, the law. (laughs) But one does it through the enablement of the Spirit. The other can't do it because of the chains of sin. One leads to life. The other leads to death. You see the difference between the two? And this one, this is what he's saying, this one, this administration trumps that one. That's good news. Why is there now, therefore, no condemnation? How can we know that this house of ours not only will not be destroyed, but that it also is inhabitable, that you can live in it, as evidenced by the fact that the Spirit now resides in this thing, enabling it to do that which was otherwise impossible? You're under a new administration. There's a new law of the land here. Uh, things are working differently than they used to. I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago uh, to be in a group with uh, some other pastors 
and there was a bona fide astronaut in our midst, and we did a Q&A with him. He had been up in space, I don't know how many times. He was one of the guys that helped architect the space station. It was a mind-blowing experience to hear this guy talk. And so, like, naturally, he tells us about all this training and all his credentials and this kind of stuff. And, but everybody really wanted to know, what's it like to be in space? <laughs> you know, like, to what degree are these movies true and not true? He actually walked us through which movies do a good job and which movies don't. <laughs> But it's fascinating to us because we realize that things work differently up there. It's just something that we fundamentally know. Like, uh, they don't, the, the same laws aren't operative. I mean, like, it just, life doesn't work the same way in space as it does down on earth. <laughs> it's a different administration. It's a different operating power, if you will. Things function differently in that world as opposed to this one. Paul is saying, all right. You've got two different worlds here. There's the one world that is characterized by the Spirit, and there is the other world that is characterized by sin. The problem, friends, please listen carefully, the problem is not God's moral demands. God made good laws. What God demands of us is is really good. Like, life works well according to the way that God has dictated it. The problem is not the law. Actually, Paul says in Romans 7 that it is holy and just and good. The problem is sin. Sin keeps us from being able to obey the law and thereby, like, well, we always deserve death. That stinks. Versus this administration in which the Spirit enables us and it leads to life. So there is the principle I, I would actually help you, yeah, I, no, I'll help you with that later. <laughs> Let's just keep going. All right, so uh, administration, uh, you see it there, layer number one, a new administration. Obedience to God is empowered by the Spirit resulting in sin. Okay, so now let's unfold the next layer of this flower because Paul's going to explain that. Notice verse three. Uh, how is it that we switched administrations? How did this go down? Uh, Notice, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, Did any of you ever grow up uh, diagramming sentences? You ever had to do that, anybody? Like ten of you? What in the world? Okay. Now, I used to think that that was like rubbish. You know, like, who, you don't have to shake your head so vigorously. (laughs) Like, really, like, who diagrams sentences? Like, what is this about? And now that I'm a grown man, I finally get it. (laughs) Like, wow, this helps you understand a sentence. This is a convoluted sentence in and of itself. Like, you you read verse 3, and you're like, what does he say? (laughs) Well, you know what we need to do to, like, help ourselves, like, simplify verse 3? We're going to need to, like, draw a little diagram, and we need to know, like, all right, what's the subject and what's the verb? Like, what's he talking about? Like, what goes on the main line? Well, let me tell you the verb. That's always the easiest thing to find first. It is condemned. The main verb in that text is condemned. All right, who did the condemning? Who or what did the condemning? It's like English class. God did. (laughs) God condemned. Okay, there you go. Now you've got the, 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 the main idea of the passage. God condemned. All right, you ready for the object? We draw the little line. Sin. God condemns sin. 
All right, now everything else around that just kind of helps explain it further. But if you want to know what verse 3 is talking about, here it is as simply as I can say it. God condemned sin. What question are we trying to answer here? We're trying to answer, well, how in the world did we ever end up from this administration to this administration? Here's how. God eliminated this administration for you. What was the operating power of this administration? Do you remember? It was sin. It was that indwelling tendency that we have to disobey God. And when I say we are messed up apart from God, I mean, we have a fundamental bent to disobey God. And, and God took that thing, that, that sin, that curse, it's almost like cancer, and like did chemo. Like he actually eliminated the cell of disobedience, the cancer, thereby enabling us to exist in a new administration. But here's how he did it. It says that God condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. In the flesh is not talking about our humanity. Listen to this. God condemned sin in the human body of a substitute. The text actually explains it this way. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. The wondrous mystery we were singing about earlier, that's what's going down here. Don't let, by the way, this phrase, uh, the likeness of sinful flesh, uh, mess you up in any way. It's not saying that Jesus was sent in sinful flesh, and it's also not saying he was sent in the likeness of flesh, as if he wasn't human. It's saying he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is the closest that we can possibly get to Jesus actually taking on a real human body that has been affected by the curse of sin, but he himself having never actually sinned. It's beautifully written. And so what happened? Jesus took on this body for what reason? So that his father could condemn the sin in his own body. When he hung on the cross that fateful Friday, he was enduring the wrath of God on our principled disobedience. It's penalty, yes, and it's power. God was pouring everything into it. And those of you who are cancer survivors in the room can actually resonate with what I am saying here. You, you know that all of these energies, these destructive energies, are poured out into the human body to destroy that which would destroy it. And in a similar way, Christ endured that on behalf of humanity. Just as Adam's disobedience led to a curse for all mankind, Christ's obedient suffering unleashed life for all who exist in him, for all who would descend from him. Do you hear what I'm saying? Notice what the text also explains. God condemns sin in the flesh. Why? <laughs> this is a good thing for you to remember because we've got to understand our relationship to the law. Look at your Bible again, please. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Friends, the law, the law could never do this. The commands, do this, don't do that. It could never fix the sin thing. It could never fix it. 
It's good for exposing our need for God's grace and Christ, but it's not good at enabling. It doesn't enable. It's kind of like you taking like the instructions to a piece of Ikea furniture and you keep looking at it and you're saying, why is it this thing putting itself together? That's not what instructions do. It's just words on a page. It guides what you do. And guess what? This thing, though, was so messed up that you couldn't even follow the instructions. <laughs> the law could never do it. I love that, um, that old poem. I, I say it here often. Nobody knows where it actually came from, so uh, it's public domain. Feel free to quote. <laughs> to run and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But greater news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law couldn't fix it. Jesus had to. And so God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. He fixed the problem. He, he cut it off at the root. And so listen to this. This has implications for you positionally. Guess what? That means that the penalty has already been paid. Penalty's already been paid. God is not angry at you. He has discharged all said anger upon his son. But listen to this. It also means that since power is broken for you, you don't have to keep disobeying him. The penalty has been paid. The power has been defeated. God condemned sin. And so the point is that God eradicated the sin problem by uh, eradicating or condemning sin itself in His Son. Layer three. All right, He's going to explain this further. Hang with me. No condemnation. The eradication of condemnation. And we've switched administrations. We were, we were in sin. We're now in uh, the Spirit. How did we get from here to there? Well, one, God eliminated sin for us. That's no longer an issue. Now ready for the positive side of the equation? He enables us through the Spirit. He enables us through the Spirit. Layer three, the Spirit's vivification. All right, I told you I'd define it. Let's do it. Think about it. Vive. Life. Life. The Spirit infuses us with life. The Spirit enables an obedience that we never had before. That's what the text is saying. Look at verse four. He did this, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Is this not beautiful? Do you understand what's going down here? Okay, so God condemned sin for a reason. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to enable us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We could never fulfill that before. We could never do that. I love how he sums it up with a singular, the righteous requirement. 
not the requirements, but in its, the, the law's essence, what it's actually about. Later on, Paul will summarize this as love in Romans 13. But right here, he's just talking about the unity of everything that God requires. Guess what? You would be able to fulfill that, or it would be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled. That's passive language, by the way. Uh, that means it will be fulfilled in you. Remember, active, passive. Active isn't that you do it. Actually, passive is that it is being done to you and through you. And so here it says that the law will be fulfilled through you. But notice, he's going to balance the passive with the active. It will be fulfilled in who? Look at the text one more time. Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Walk. Uh, That's the metaphor for behavior. Uh, Those who live in a certain way. Those who live... Not according to the flesh, but the Spirit. Now, the word flesh trips us up often. I think if you're going to read your Bible, or especially the book of Romans, you need to understand what it means. It is not just talking about like a human flesh as opposed to spiritual stuff. That's, uh, that's Platonism. That uh, things that are created are inherently like bad or corrupt, and things that are spiritual or ethereal, they're actually qualitatively good. Now, that's not Bible. But the Bible is actually referring here to, yes, human flesh, that which can be uh, touched and tasted, the, the human body. But it's talking about the human body that has this, this penchant for sin, to, for disobedience. It's unredeemed humanity. That might be the best way to say it. What's the flesh? It's unredeemed humanity. He's saying, all right, so who is, is going to have this, uh, this law of God, this requirement of God fulfilled in them? It are those who have the Spirit, those who do not walk according to the flesh, their own sinful human impulses, trying to do it the best they can with all they've got, but those who are being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit enables obedience. Passivity is balanced by its activity. I love that, that verse in Philippians 2. Do you remember this from a few months ago when we were studying where Paul said, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You remember that? You're like, Dak, that's heavy. <laughs> I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Activity, passivity. It is being enabled by God, but it is also humanly executed by you. If I could point to one figure in history who I think, outside of the Scriptures, best understood this principle of the eradication of condemnation, and its effect on our everyday behavior. I think I would point to several individuals, but my, my winning vote would go to Augustine of Hippo. You, you don't hear his name very often. You're t- we're, we're talking 4th century A.D. <laughs> An African brother, by the way, who, um, who really lived a pretty profligate life. I can't even believe I used that word. Um, I was about to say debauched. Goodness sake, somebody help me out. A pretty evil life. I mean, this guy was heinous. Like, what he did was heinous. He grew up in a Christian family. His, His mom's name was Monica. If you've ever been to Los Angeles, the city of angels, there's Santa Monica. 
Saint Monica. That's what it's referring to. Monica is uh, his mother, and she was a godly woman. By all counts, I mean, she, she loved the Lord. She tried to raise up her son in the faith, uh, but her husband was an absolute pagan. And so Augustine kind of got the worst of both. He got some religious hypocrisy stuff, and he got this tendency to sin in some egregious ways from his dad, and he lived them both out. In fact, there's this one instance uh, when he was 11 years old. If you're 11 years old in the room, it's a shout-out to you. All right, this is what Augustine says. It, he, he recognized that sin was a real thing existing in him when he was 11, and he had this opportunity with several other boys to steal apples uh, from an orchard. And he, he says that we all stole the apples, and we didn't even eat them. We didn't even want them. We just did it because it felt good to do something bad. Recognizing that principle, he gave into it. Through his teenage years into his early 20s, he was a womanizer. That's the best way to say it. In fact, I would warn you, if you read his confessions, it can be graphic at times. He just talks about, like, he went from one woman to the next to the next, had a child out of wedlock. I mean, it was just a rough existence. And then he kind of, like, turns his act around when he gets, like, in his mid-20s. But he goes from lawlessness to legalism. Like, he tries to make himself this, like, moral, upstanding citizen. He, he is, becomes a professor. He starts teaching. He starts employing rhetoric. Uh, he masters the Latin language. Never really was all that good with Greek. He just loved to speak. In fact, because he loved speaking so much, he actually kind of, like, had this man crush on this guy named Ambrose of Milan. He was obsessed with this guy. He was a preacher. And he thought, this guy knows a lot. This guy's a good preacher. And he just, like, listened to him speak. But Ambrose was a true preacher of the gospel. And as he was preaching the gospel, Augustine came under the vivifying influence of the Spirit. He already knew some things about the gospel, but then he was converted. He was changed. His life totally changed. He said even of that experience, this is beautiful, belatedly, I loved thee, O beauty. He's talking about God there. So ancient and so new. Belatedly, only recently, I loved thee. For see, thou wast within, and I was without. I sought thee out there. Unlovely, I rushed heedlessly among the lovely things thou hast made. Thou wast with me, but I was not with thee. These things kept me far from thee, even though they were not at all, unless they were in thee. Thou didst call and cry aloud, and didst force open my deafness. Thou didst gleam and shine, and didst chase away my blindness. Thou didst breathe fragrant odors, and I drew in my breath, and now I pant for thee. I taste it, and now I hunger and thirst. Thou didst touch me, and I bur uh, burn for thy peace. It's like that song we just sang, O Great God. I was blind, I was deaf, and he realized that, that once he heard the gospel, that, like, there was life in him. Like, there was a new operating impulse within him. And then Augustine would try to explain years later like, how that all went down. Like, what was the relationship between law? And what was the relationship between uh, this lawlessness? This, and what was the relationship between the lawgiver? And what was the relationship between the gospel? These words that I'm about to read to you, I think, are some of the most helpful in all of church history. This is Augustine's summary of the situation. He says, Law was given that grace might be sought. 
Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. I'm going to say it again. Please listen carefully. Law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. Friends, the law is our enemy outside of Christ. It leads us to Him. But once in Christ, we're enabled to obey it and thereby enjoy the life that comes from God's good purposes. We've seen it in the text. There is this declaration. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But then we notice that first layer of the flower, this administration change, right? Where we're no longer here, but we're here. Well, how did that ever happen? That happened as God condemned sin. He fixed the sin problem. He, to borrow uh, from uh, that great philosopher Barney Fife, he nipped it in the butt. <laughs> he eliminated sin as an option for us. No longer would it dominate us. It would not have to. Condemnation, which enabled vivification, life. Life through the Spirit. Can, can I please read for you? I'm sorry I'm reading a lot. But some people say things way better than I do. <laughs> I want to read to you like the summary of the matter from a theological perspective. This is a historical Baptist confession on this very topic of law and grace. Just listen to how it reads here. And you may need to come back and listen to it carefully at another time. We believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government, that it is holy, just, and good, and that the inability which the Scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love of sin, to deliver them from which and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one of the great ends of the gospel and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. Those Baptist brothers so long ago recognized law in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is our inability, but guess what? The Spirit solves the inability problem. He enables obedience, and now we can enjoy full, not just positional, but practical fellowship with God, all on account of what Christ has done. May I conclude by telling you this? Sin is the real tyrant. It's not the law. It's not God. And hear me carefully, dear friend. It's not you. If you're in Christ, the real enemy is not you. God has changed you. The real tyrant is sin. And so to the groups that I referenced earlier, Let me leave you with a parting word. For those of you who are here today and may be lost, lost, I would encourage you to wake up. Wake up. God demands holiness of his people. 
He is a gracious father, but he is also a righteous king, and he will not tolerate rebellion. He will punish it justly, and without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I want you to understand that the only way you will ever enjoy such holiness is not by redoubling your efforts and and making some, some fantastic New Year's resolutions. The only way that this will ever come about is you to forsake your old way of life and cling to in faith Jesus and Him alone. He died satisfying God's wrath on your behalf. He rose again to give you power to live for Him. It all comes from Him. The easiest way that I can say, and I hope that it causes you to think just a little, is that faith and good works are necessary to be right with God. Let me say it another way just to maybe make you angry. Belief and behavior are necessary to be right with God. Some of you are ready to like charge the stage right now. But let me clarify. The former is the root. The latter is the fruit. The faith is the root. The works are the fruit. The belief is the root. The behavior is the fruit. If you say that you have believed in God, but it has not changed the way you live, you may not have believed in the God of the Bible and his son, who is Jesus Christ. Wake up, please. If you want to know more about that, if you want to talk, talk to a church member, talk to me before you leave. There's a second group. It's the legalist. My advice to you, dear friend, would be to calm down. To the lost, I say, wake up. To the legalist, I say, calm down. It is okay. Uh, uh, Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something that positionally uh, you are righteous before God and practically you will be. You will be. Uh, Some of you uh, need to hear these words from A.W. Tozer. He said it this way. From a failure to properly understand God comes a world of unhappiness among good Christians even today. The Christian life is thought to be a glum, unrelieved, cross-carrying event under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He is austere, peevish, highly temperamental, and extremely hard to please. But I warn you, friends, that is no way to view the God of the Bible. This idea that you're somehow like in in safe standing because you keep saying, I'm just some kind of spiritual failure. I can't get my act together. Uh, I just, you know, woe is me. I'm just such a miserable person. Um, You know, like I I don't have anything to offer. I can't obey. You know, like we love the Isaac Watts line about just being a worm, you know, being wretched in God's sight. And look, there, there is a spot for humbling yourself before God. But friends, you need to understand something that fundamentally you You are not that anymore. You're not. It is a lie. That may be what you were outside of Christ, but that is not what you are in Christ. The Bible clearly teaches that holiness is possible. And friends, this is not bad news. It's good news. 
You can now, because of Christ, live the way He forever intended for you to live. Listen, I want you to understand that even though the the book of Isaiah says that our, our best works are filthy rags before God. I want you to understand that Isaiah is communicating to a group of people who are just perfunctorily uh, offering sacrifices, going through the motions. He's saying that is what is useless and worthless. But your loving Heavenly Father is excited by any acts of obedience that you would offer to Him. Do you understand something? That you were dead. You were dead, so you had no works to offer, but now you are alive. And even though they may be elementary, even though they may be small, even though they may seem minuscule, God is pleased. I assure you that there are some, probably some really good parents in the room and some less good parents. <laughs> but even the less good parents understand awarding their children for standards of behavior that are appropriate with their age and ability. You know, when like your three-year-old like comes home from church and they've like scribbled like outside the lines, but at least they got some color on that page, right? I mean, really, what parent in here is going to be like, what is this trash? (laughs) You're like, wow, at least you got like 60% of it in the lines, you know? I mean, you understand that. I mean, what, what dad, no matter how harsh, would like actually take in like his, his son's attempts at obedience. He comes, he comes running in from the garage and says, Daddy, I organized the garage for you. I cleaned the garage for you. And you go out to inspect this organization project and find that, you know what, the paint cans are not all in the same spot. They're all over the place. And what dad starts kicking the paint cans around saying, what is this junk? He's a good father. He recognized that the efforts were there. There's life there. There's love there. And he loves it. To those of you who struggle and think that the law is this, this thing that is beating you up and that you have nothing to offer, you have nothing to offer outside of Christ. But in Christ... The Father appreciates your obedience. Keep obeying. Keep fighting. Keep persevering. And then to the final group, the lawless. For those of you who have this tendency, even in Christ, to say, you know what, I think think this is off. I think that I I shouldn't uh, be worried so much about God's commands. Listen, you don't need to worry about them, but can I give you this word? Act out. I mean that in a good way. Act out what God has put inside you. (laughs) You can obey. And it's okay to know exactly what he wants from you and to do it. J.I. Packer put it this way. He says, in reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and holy. Uh, friends, I just want you to know that by, uh, you're not going to get anywhere by trying to avoid the clear expectations that God has for you. These are concrete opportunities for obedience, and I would encourage you to pursue them with abandon. Can I give you just like three really concrete ones? Uh, one would be uh, to actually be baptized if you are supposedly in Christ. 
We don't talk about that often, but man, the apostles didn't have any trouble talking about that. If you are in Jesus, if you have been born again, he says, identify with me publicly by being baptized. There's a basic thing of obedience. You say legalism. No, I say opportunity to obey. The Spirit has enabled that. Be baptized. And then secondly, walk with Christ in the company of his church. We're about to have a few people publicly identify with that in a moment. But God did not intend for you to do this Christian life thing alone. You can make up a whole list of stuff that you want to do and say, oh, these are the things that I want to do, obey God. But let me tell you something that's really fundamental. Walk with Christ in the company of his church. That's an opportunity for you. And then finally, third opportunity, obey his personal and interpersonal commands. You're going to hear us in a moment read over um, our church covenant And what you need to understand about this little church covenant thing we're going to read is it's just an ethical summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. Here's the way I look at the church covenant. These are all the amazing ways that I get to obey my heavenly Father. It's a summary. It's a summary of what God has commanded in his word. And guess what? I don't go through that thinking, oh, the covenant. (laughs) I think, wow, God has spelled out exactly for me what he wants and I want to do it. Don't miss out on the blessing of obedience. And so I conclude with Paul's words. Friends, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Hey, it's all good. There's no condemnation. You can obey.